J. Frank. The Monkey's Paw by W. W. Jacobs. Without, the night was cold and wet, but in the small parlor of Laburnum Villa, the blinds were drawn and the fire burned brightly. Father and son were at chess. The former, who possessed ideas about the game involving radical changes, putting his king into such sharp and unnecessary perils that it even provoked comment from the white-haired old lady knitting placidly by the fire. "'Hark at the wind,' said Mr. White, who, having seen a fatal mistake after it was too late, was amiably desirous of preventing his son from seeing it. "'I'm listening,' said the latter, grimly surveying the board as he stretched out his hand. "'Check.' "'I should hardly think that he'd come tonight,' said his father, with his hand poised over the board." Mate, replied the son. That's the worst of living so far out, bawled Mr. White, with sudden and unlooked-for violence. Of all the beastly, slushy, out-of-the-way places to live in, this is the worst. Pathway's a bog, and the road's a torrent. I don't know what people are thinking about. I suppose because only two houses in the road are let, they think it doesn't matter. Never mind, dear, said his wife soothingly. Perhaps you'll win the next one. Mr. White looked up sharply, just in time to intercept a knowing glance between mother and son. The words died away on his lips, and he hid a guilty grin in his thin gray beard. There he is, said Herbert White, as the gate banged too loudly, and heavy footsteps came toward the door. The old man rose with hospitable haste, and opening the door was heard condoling with the new arrival. 
the new arrival also condoled with himself, so that Mrs. White said, Tut-tut, and coughed gently as her husband entered the room, followed by a tall, burly man, beady of eye and rubicund of visage. Sergeant Major Morris, he said, introducing him. The Sergeant Major shook hands, and taking the preferred seat by the fire, watched contentedly while his host got out whiskey and tumblers and stood a small copper kettle on the fire. At the third glass, his eyes got brighter, and he began to talk, the little family circle regarding with eager interest this visitor from distant parts as he squared his broad shoulders in the chair and spoke of wild scenes and dofty deeds, of wars and plagues and strange peoples. Twenty-one years of it, said Mr. White, nodding at his wife and son. When he went away, he was a slip of a youth in the warehouse. Now look at him. He don't look to have taken much harm, said Mrs. White politely. I'd like to go to India myself, said the old man, just to look round a bit, you know. Better where you are, said the sergeant major, shaking his head. He put down the empty glass and, sighing softly, shook it again. I should like to see those old temples and fakirs and jugglers, said the old man. What was that you started telling me the other day about a monkey's paw or something, Morris? Nothing, said the soldier hastily. Leastways nothing worth hearing. Monkey's paw, said Mrs. White curiously. Well, it's just a bit of what you might call magic, perhaps, said the sergeant major offhandedly. His three listeners leaned forward eagerly. The visitor absent-mindedly put his empty glass to his lips and then set it down again. His host filled it for him. To look at, said the sergeant major, fumbling in his pocket, it's just an ordinary little paw, dried to a mummy. He took something out of his pocket and preferred it. Mrs. White drew back with a grimace. But her son, taking it, examined it curiously. And what is there special about it, inquired Mr. White as he took it from his son, and having examined it, placed it upon the table. It had a spell put on it by an old fakir, said the sergeant major, a very holy man. He wanted to show that fate ruled people's lives, and that those who interfered with it did so to their sorrow. He put a spell on it so that three separate men could each have three wishes from it. His manner was so impressive that his hearers were conscious that their light laughter jarred somewhat. Well, why don't you have three, sir, said Herbert White cleverly. The soldier regarded him in the way that middle ages want to regard presumptuous youth. I have, he said quietly, and his blotchy face whitened. And did you really have the three wishes granted, asked Mrs. White. I did, said the sergeant major, and his glass tapped against his strong teeth. And has anybody else wished, persisted the old lady. The first man has his three wishes, yes, was the reply. I don't know what the first two were, but the third 
was for death. That's how I got the paw. His tones were so grave that a hush fell upon the group. If you've had your three wishes, it's no good to you now then, Morris, said the old man at last. What do you keep it for? The soldier shook his head. Fancy, I suppose, he said slowly. I did have some idea of selling it, but I don't think I will. It has caused enough mischief already. Besides, people won't buy. They think it's a fairy tale, some of them. And those who do think anything of it want to try it first and pay me afterward. If you could have another three wishes, said the old man, eyeing him keenly, would you have them? I don't know, said the other. I don't know. He took the paw and dangling it between his forefinger and thumb, suddenly threw it upon the fire. White, with a slight cry, stooped down and snatched it off. Better let it burn, said the soldier solemnly. If you don't want it, Morris, said the other, give it to me. I won't, said his friend doggedly. I threw it on the fire. If you keep it, don't blame me for what happens. Pitch it on the fire again, like a sensible man. The other shook his head and examined his new possession closely. How do you do it? he inquired. Hold it up in your right hand and wish aloud, said the sergeant major. But I warn you of the consequences. Sounds like the Arabian Nights, said Mrs. White as she rose and began to set the supper. Don't you think you might wish for four pairs of hands for me? Her husband drew the talisman from pocket, and then all three burst into laughter as the sergeant major, with a look of alarm on his face, caught him by the arm. If you must wish, he said gruffly, wish for something sensible. Mr. White dropped it back in his pocket, and placing chairs motioned his friend to the table. In the business of supper the talisman was partly forgotten, and afterward the three sat listening in an enthralled fashion to a second installment of the soldier's adventures in India. If the tale about the monkey's paw is not more truthful than those he has been telling us, said Herbert, as the door closed behind their guest, just in time for him to catch the last train, we shan't make much out of it. Did you give him anything for it, father? inquired Mrs. White, regarding her husband closely. A trifle, said he, coloring slightly. He didn't want it, but I made him take it and he pressed me again to throw it away. Likely, said Herbert with pretended horror. Why, we're going to be rich and famous and happy. Wish to be an emperor, father, to begin with, then you can't be henpecked. He darted round the table, pursued by the maligned Mrs. White, armed with an antimacassar. Mr. White took the paw from his pocket and eyed it dubiously. I don't know what to wish for, and that's a fact, he said slowly. It seems to me I've got all I want. If you only cleared the house, you'd be quite happy, wouldn't you, said Herbert, with his hand on his shoulder. Well, wish for two hundred pounds, then. That'll just do it. 
his father, smiling shamefacedly at his own credulity, held up the talisman as his son with a solemn face, somewhat marred by a wink at his mother, sat down at the piano and struck a few impressive chords. I wish for two hundred pounds, said the old man distinctly. A fine crash from the piano greeted the words, interrupted by a shuddering cry from the old man. His wife and son ran toward him. It moved, he cried, with a glance of disgust at the object as it lay on the floor. As I wished, it twisted in my hand like a snake. Well, I don't see the money, said his son as he picked it up and placed it on the table, and I bet I never shall. It must have been your fancy, father, said his wife, regarding him anxiously. He shook his head. Never mind, though, there's no harm done. But it gave me a shock all the same. They sat down by the fire again while the two men finished their pipes. Outside, the wind was higher than ever, and the old man started nervously at the sound of a door banging upstairs. A silence unusual and depressing settled upon all three, which lasted until the old couple rose to retire for the night. I expect you'll find the cash tied up in a big bag in the middle of your bed, said Herbert, as he bade them good night, and something horrible squatting up on top of the wardrobe watching you as you pocket your ill-gotten gains. He sat alone in the darkness, gazing at the dying fire and seeing faces in it. The last face was so horrible and so simian that he gazed at it in amazement. It got so vivid that with a little uneasy laugh, he felt on the table for a glass containing a little water to throw over it. His hand grasped the monkey's paw, and with a little shiver, he wiped his hand on his coat and went up to bed. In the brightness of the wintry sun next morning as it streamed over the breakfast table, he laughed at his fears. There was an air of prosaic wholesomeness about the room, which it had lacked on the previous night, and the dirty, shriveled little paw was pitched on the sideboard with a carelessness which betokened no great belief in its virtues. I suppose all old soldiers are the same, said Mrs. White. The idea of our listening to such nonsense. How could wishes be granted in these days? And if they could, how could two hundred pounds hurt you, father? Might drop on his head from the sky, said the frivolous Herbert. Morris said that things happened so naturally, said his father, that you might, if you so wished, attribute it to coincidence. Well, don't break into the money before I come back, said Herbert as he rose from the table. I'm afraid it will turn you into a mean, avaricious man, and we shall have to disown you. His mother laughed, and following him to the door, watched him down the road. And returning to the breakfast table, was very happy at the expense of her husband's credulity all of which did not prevent her from scurrying to the door at the postman's knock, nor prevent her from referring somewhat shortly to retired sergeant majors of bibulous habits 
when she found that the post brought a tailor's bill. Herbert will have some more of his funny remarks, I expect, when he comes home, she said, as they sat at dinner. I dare say, said Mr. White, pouring himself out some beer. But for all that, the thing moved in my hand. That I'll swear to. You thought it did, said the old lady soothingly. I say it did, replied the other. There was no thought about it. I had just... What's the matter? His wife made no reply. She was watching the mysterious movements of a man outside, who, peering in an undecided fashion at the house, appeared to be trying to make up his mind to enter. In mental connection with the two hundred pounds, she noticed that the stranger was well-dressed and wore a silk hat of glossy newness. Three times he paused at the gate and then walked on again. The fourth time he stood with his hand upon it, and then, with a sudden resolution, flung it open and walked up the path. Mrs. White, at the same moment, placed her hands behind her, and hurriedly unfastening the strings of her apron, put that useful article of apparel beneath the cushion of her chair. She brought the stranger, who seemed ill at ease, into the room. He gazed at her furtively and listened in a preoccupied fashion as the old lady apologized for the appearance of the room and her husband's coat, a garment which he usually reserved for the garden. She then waited as patiently as her sex would permit for him to broach his business. But he was at first strangely silent. I was asked to call, he said at last and stooped and picked a piece of cotton from his trousers. I come from Ma and Megan's. The old lady started. Is anything the matter? she asked breathlessly. Has anything happened to Herbert? What is it? What is it? Her husband interposed. There, there, mother, he said hastily. Sit down and don't jump to conclusions. You've not brought bad news, I'm sure, sir. And he eyed the other wistfully. I'm sorry, began the visitor. Is he hurt? demanded the mother wildly. The visitor bowed in assent. Badly hurt, he said quietly. But he is not in any pain. Oh, thank God, said the old woman, clasping her hands. Thank God for that. Thank... She broke off suddenly as the sinister meaning of the assurance dawned upon her, and she saw the awful confirmation of her fears in the other's perverted face. She caught her breath, and turning to her slower-witted husband, laid her trembling old hand upon his. There was a long silence. He was caught in the machinery said the visitor at length in a low voice. Caught in the machinery, repeated Mr. White in a dazed fashion. Yes. He sat staring blankly out of the window and taking his wife's hand between his own, pressed it as he had been wont to do in their old courting days nearly forty years before. He was the only one left to us, he said, turning gently to the visitor. It is hard, 
The other coughed and, rising, walked slowly to the window. The firm wished me to convey their sincere sympathy with you and your great loss, he said, without looking round. I beg that you will understand. I am only their servant and merely obeying orders. There was no reply. The old woman's face was white, her eyes staring, and her breath inaudible. On the husband's face was a look such as his friend the sergeant might have carried into his first action. I was to say that Ma and Megan's disclaim all responsibility, continued the other. They admit no liability at all. But, in consideration of your son's services, they wish to present you with a certain sum as compensation. Mr. White dropped his wife's hand, and rising to his feet, gazed with a look of horror at his visitor. His dry lips shaped the words, How much? Two hundred pounds was the answer. Unconscious of his wife's shriek, the old man smiled faintly, put out his hands like a sightless man, and dropped a senseless heap to the floor. In the huge new cemetery some two miles distant, the old people buried their dead and came back to a house steeped in shadow and silence. It was all over so quickly that at first they could hardly realize it and remained in a state of expectation as though of something else to happen, something else which was to lighten this load too heavy for old hearts to bear. But the days passed, and expectation gave place to resignation, the hopeless resignation of the old, sometimes miscalled apathy. Sometimes they hardly exchanged a word, for now they had nothing to talk about, and their days were long to weariness. It was about a week after that the old man, waking suddenly in the night, stretched out his hand and found himself alone. The room was in darkness, and the sound of subdued weeping came from the window. He raised himself in bed and listened. Come back, he said tenderly. You will be cold. It is colder for my son, said the old woman, and wept afresh. The sound of her sobs died away on his ears, the bed was warm and his eyes heavy with sleep. He dozed fitfully and then slept until a sudden wild cry from his wife awoke him with a start. The paw, she cried wildly. The monkey's paw. He started up in alarm. Where? Where is it? What's the matter? She came stumbling across the room toward him. I want it, she said quietly. You've not destroyed it. It's in the parlor on the bracket, he replied, marveling. Why? She cried and laughed together, and bending over, kissed his cheek. I, I only just thought of it, she said hysterically. Why didn't I think of it before? Why didn't you think of it? Think of what? he questioned. The other two wishes, she replied rapidly. We've only had one. Was not that enough? he demanded fiercely. 
No, she cried triumphantly. We'll have one more. Go down and get it quickly and wish our boy alive again. The man sat up in bed and flung the bedclothes from his quaking limbs. Good God, you are mad, he cried aghast. Get it, she panted. Get it quickly and wish. Oh, my boy, my boy. Her husband struck a match and lit the candle. Get back to bed, he said unsteadily. You don't know what you are saying. We had the first wish granted, said the old woman feverishly. Why not the second? A coincidence, stammered the old man. Go and get it and wish, cried his wife, quivering with excitement. The old man turned and regarded her, and his voice shook. He has been dead ten days, and besides, he... I would not tell you else, but I could only recognize him by his clothing. If he was too terrible for you to see, then how now? Bring him back, cried the old woman, and dragged him toward the door. Do you think I fear the child I have nursed? He went down in the darkness and felt his way to the parlor and then to the mantelpiece. The talisman was in its place, and a horrible fear that the unspoken wish might bring his mutilated son before him ere he could escape from the room seized upon him and he caught his breath as he found that he had lost the direction of the door. His brow cold with sweat, he felt his way round the table and groped along the wall until he found himself in the small passage with the unwholesome thing in his hand. Even his wife's face seemed changed as he entered the room. It was white and expectant, and to his fears seemed to have an unnatural look upon it. He was afraid of her. Wish, she cried in a strong voice. It is foolish and wicked, he faltered. Wish, repeated his wife. He raised his hand. I wish my son alive again. The talisman fell to the floor, and he regarded it fearfully. Then he sank trembling into a chair as the old woman with burning eyes walked to the window and raised the blind. He sat until he was chilled with the cold, glancing occasionally at the figure of the old woman peering through the window. The candle end, which had burned below the rim of the china candlestick, was throwing pulsating shadows on the ceiling and walls until, with a flicker larger than the rest, it expired. The old man, with an unspeakable sense of relief at the failure of the talisman, crept back to his bed, and a minute or two afterward, the old woman came silently and apathetically beside him. Neither spoke, but lay silently listening to the ticking of the clock. A stair creaked, and a squeaky mouse scurried noisily through the wall. The darkness was oppressive, and after lying for some time screwing up his courage, he took the box of matches and, striking one, went downstairs for a candle. At the foot of the stairs, the match went out, and he paused to strike another, and at the same moment, a knock. So quiet 
and stealthy as to be scarcely audible, sounded on the front door. The matches fell from his hand and spilled in the passage. He stood motionless, his breath suspended until the knock was repeated. Then he turned and fled swiftly back to his room and closed the door behind him. A third knock sounded through the house. What's that? cried the old woman, starting up. A rat, said the old man in shaking tones. A rat. It passed me on the stairs. His wife sat up in bed listening. A loud knock resounded through the house. It's Herbert, she screamed. It's Herbert. She ran to the door, but her husband was before her, and catching her by the arm, held her tightly. What are you going to do? he whispered hoarsely. It's my boy, it's Herbert, she cried, struggling mechanically. I forgot it was two miles away. What are you holding me for? Let go, I must open the door. For God's sake, don't let it in, cried the old man, trembling. You're afraid of your own son, she cried, struggling. Let me go. I'm coming, Herbert, I'm coming. There was another knock, and another. The old woman, with a sudden wrench, broke free and ran from the room. Her husband followed to the landing and called after her appealingly as she hurried downstairs. He heard the chain rattle back and the bottom bolt drawn slowly and stiffly from the socket. Then the old woman's voice strained and panting. The bolt, she cried loudly. Come down, I can't reach it. But her husband was on his hands and knees, groping wildly on the floor in search of the paw. If he could only find it before the thing outside got in. A perfect fusillade of knocks reverberated through the house, and he heard the scraping of a chair as his wife put it down in the passage against the door. He heard the creaking of the bolt as it came slowly back, and at the same moment he found the monkey's paw and frantically breathed his third and last wish. The knocking ceased suddenly. Although the echoes of it were still in the house. He heard the chair drawn back and the door opened. A cold wind rushed up the staircase and a long, loud wail of disappointment and misery from his wife gave him courage to run down to her side and then to the gate beyond. The street lamp flickering opposite shone on a quiet and deserted road. End of the Monkey's Paw Recording by M.J. Frank, Portland, Oregon Thank you everyone for listening to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. Check out the show at pgttcm.com. Check out the show notes on your listening device, on your smart device, on your laptop, or however you're checking this show out. Follow the show notes to 
check out the people who have been on the show as guests, find out what the books they're working on, or art projects, or movies. And of course, check out the sponsors. Support the people who support us. Find cool stuff from those folks over at Psychedelic Water. It's water with mild psychedelics that are legal in America. Suspended in green tea and other delicious flavors. And we've also got Taza Chocolate. And Taza Chocolate, they are out of Somerset, Massachusetts. It's stone ground chocolate. They use dairy alternatives. It's vegan. And oh my goodness, it is really good. Some of them come in bars. Some of them come in the eels, like the abuelita. You can mix it in into uh, you make your own hot chocolate. It's really good stuff. I really, you can eat it by itself. And that's Tasa. That's in the show notes. Who else do we got? We got Glary. Oh man, I love Glary. Glary is really inexpensive guitars. You can get some really good prices on amplifiers. Get good prices on mandolins. They've got all kinds of cool stuff. Not just guitars. I love guitars, but Glary has more than just guitars. Copper Cow. Okay, Copper Cow is amazing. It's these little packages that have this uh, coffee already inside. Some of them come with creamers. It's flavors like black, lavender, churro, salt caramel. They've got some really good flavors. I really like the lavender and the black. I'm going to try the churro pretty soon. Um, I have friends who have purchased this and they highly recommend it. Coffee from Vietnam and just this really, 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 really good Vietnamese pour-over coffee that I highly recommend. Golden Goat CBD. Check it out. Golden Goat CBD. I have anxiety issues. I love, I live in a state where you can purchase uh, cannabis legally, so I don't go with their Delta, Delta 8, but do you, do you live somewhere where you can't just, I don't know, walk three blocks and everyone goes, hey DB, and you get your order that you phoned in and then go home and then work on your podcast. No, maybe you live someplace that's awful. What if you're in Texas? Anyway, uh, check out, check out, check them out. Golden Goat, CBD, Delta 8, they have chewables, they've got uh, gummies, they've got cool stuff like that, they've got uh, tinctures, and whatever you need to get you going in the direction you need to be going. The Fretwire. DIY guitar, guitar parts, and guitar accessories. Centrally located in Utah. Get what you want. Pretty darn quick. The Fretwire. So, yeah, they've got a pretty good community of people. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an advanced lutineer. The Fretwire, they've got people who will answer your questions. I assume they're, they're comment boards and stuff like that when I have questions on, like, oh, man, I want to make a baritone flying V, uh, but how am I going to get a baritone neck on a Gibson body? Wait a minute. This flying V was so custom already that, oh, man, okay. Better check the Fretwire forums, see if anyone else has had this problem. And generally, since there's so many people with the Fretwire, that work with the Fretwire, that do stuff with the Fretwire, it's like having a massive community. And also, pretty good prices, uh, pretty decent shipping, and I have to say, I, I like them. I've, I've worked with other companies in the past for building guitars. I like the Fretwire. And, yeah, if you want to get into building guitars, if you've just, I don't know, during the pandemic, did you learn how to play guitar and want to build them? I did the opposite way around first. I learned how to build guitars. 
and then I learned how to set up guitars, and then I learned how to play guitars. So, I don't know, maybe you want to do it the opposite way of me. You know how to play a guitar, now you want to learn the guts of it. Anyway, Fretwire's got you covered. Check them out in the show notes. Back to the show. Recording by Capricia Page. The Three Sisters by W. W. Jacobs. Thirty years ago, on a wet autumn evening, the household of Mallet's Lodge was gathered round the deathbed of Ursula Mallow, the eldest of the three sisters who inhabited it. The dingy, moth-eaten curtains of the old wooden bedstead were drawn apart. The light of a smoking oil lamp falling upon the hopeless countenance of the dying woman as she turned her dull eyes upon her sisters. The room was in silence, except for an occasional sob from her youngest sister, Eunice. Outside, the rain fell steadily over the steaming marshes. Nothing is to be changed, Tabitha, gasped Ursula to the other sister, who bore a striking resemblance to her, although her expression was harder and colder. This room is to be locked up and never opened. Very well, said Tabitha brusquely, though I don't see how it can matter to you then. It does matter, said her sister with startling energy. How do you know? How do you know that I may not sometimes visit it? I have lived in this house so long. I am certain that I shall see it again. I will come back. Come back to watch over you both and see that no harm befalls you. You are talking wildly, said Tabitha, by no means moved by her sister's solicitude for her welfare. Your mind is wandering. You know that I have no faith in such things. Ursula sighed and beckoned to Eunice, who was weeping silently at the bedside, placed her feeble arms round her neck and kissed her. Do not weep, dear, she said feebly. Perhaps it is best so. A lonely woman's life is scarcely worth living. We have no hopes, no aspirations. Other women have had happy husbands and children. But we in this forgotten place have grown old together. I go first, but you must soon follow. Tabitha comfortably conscious of only forty years and an iron frame, shrugged her shoulders and smiled grimly. I go first, repeated Ursula in a new and strange voice as her heavy eyes slowly closed. But I will come for each of you in turn, when your lease of life runs out. At that moment, I will be with you, to lead your steps, whither I now go. As she spoke, the flickering lamp went out suddenly, as though extinguished by a rapid hand, and the room was left in utter darkness. A 
strange, suffocating noise issued from the bed, and when the trembling women had relighted the lamp, all that was left of Ursula Mallow was ready for the grave. That night, the survivors passed together. The dead woman had been a firm believer in the existence of that shadowy borderland which is said to form an unhallowed link between the living and the dead. And even the stolid Tabitha, slightly unnerved by the events of the night, was not free from certain apprehensions that she might have been right. With the bright morning, their fears disappeared. The sun stole in the window, and seeing the poor earthworm face on the pillow so touched it and glorified it that only its goodness and weakness were seen. And the beholders came to wonder how they could ever have felt any dread of aught so calm and peaceful. A day or two passed, and the body was transferred to a massive coffin, long regarded as the finest piece of work of its kind ever turned out of the village carpenter's workshop. Then a slow and melancholy cortege headed by four bearers wound its solemn way across the marshes to the family vault in the gray old church, and all that was left of Ursula was placed by the father and mother who had taken the self-same journey some thirty years before. To Eunice, as they toiled slowly home, the day seemed strange and Sabbath-like, the flat prospect of marsh wider and more forlorn than usual, the roar of the sea more depressing. Tabitha had no such fancies. The bulk of the dead woman's property had been left to Eunice, and her avarice soul was sorely troubled, and her proper sisterly feelings of regret for the deceased sadly interfered with it in consequence. What are you going to do with all that money, Eunice? She asked as they sat at their quiet tea. I shall leave it as it stands, said Eunice slowly. We have both got sufficient to live upon, and I shall devote the income from it to supporting some beds in the children's hospital. If Ursula had wished it to go to a hospital, said Tabitha in her deep tones, she would have left the money to it herself. I wonder you do not respect her wishes more. What else can I do with it, then? inquired Eunice. Save it said the other with gleaming eyes. Save it. Eunice shook her head. No, said she, it shall go to the sick children. But the principal I will not touch, and if I die before you, it shall become yours, and you can do what you like with it. Very well, said Tabitha, smoldering her anger by a strong effort. I don't believe that was what Ursula meant you to do with it, and I don't believe she will rest quietly in the grave while you squander the money she stored so carefully. What do you mean? asked Eunice with pale lips. You are trying to frighten me. I thought that you did not believe in such things. Tabitha made no answer, and to avoid the anxious, inquiring gaze of her sister, drew her chair to the fire, 
and folding her gaunt arms, composed herself for a nap. For some time, life went on quietly in the old house. The room of the dead woman, in accordance with her last desire, was kept firmly locked, its dirty windows forming a strange contrast to the prim cleanliness of the others. Tabitha, never very talkative, became more taciturn than ever, and stalked about the house and the neglected garden like an unquiet spirit, her brow roughened into deep wrinkles suggestive of much thought. As the winter came on, bringing with it the long, dark evenings, the old house became more lonely than ever, and an air of mystery and dread seemed to hang over it and brood in its empty rooms and dark corridors. The deep silence of night was broken by strange noises for which neither the wind nor the rats could be held accountable. Old Martha, seated in her distant kitchen, heard strange sounds upon the stairs, and once, upon hurrying to them, fancied that she saw a dark figure squatting upon the landing, though a subsequent search with a candle and spectacles failed to discover anything. Eunice was disturbed by several vague incidents, and as she suffered from a complaint of the heart, rendered very ill by them. Even Tabitha admitted a strangeness about the house, but, confident in her piety and virtue, took no heed of it, her mind being fully employed in another direction. Since the death of her sister, all restraint upon her was removed, and she yielded herself up entirely to the stern and hard rules enforced by avarice upon its devotees. Her housekeeping expenses were kept rigidly separate from those of Eunice, and her food limited to the coarsest dishes, while in the matter of clothes the old servant was by far the better dressed. Seated alone in her bedroom, this uncouth, hard-featured creature reveled in her possessions, grudging even the expense of the candle-end, which enabled her to behold them. So completely did this passion change her that both Eunice and Martha became afraid of her, and lay awake in their beds night after night, trembling at the chinking of coins at her unholy vigils. One day, Eunice ventured to remonstrate, Why don't you bank your money, Tabitha? She said, It is surely not safe to keep such large sums in such a lonely house. Large sums? repeated the exasperated Tabitha. Large sums? What nonsense is this? You know well that I have barely sufficient to keep me. It is a great temptation to housebreakers, said her sister, not pressing the point. I made sure last night that I heard somebody in the house. Did you? said Tabitha, grasping her arm, a horrible look on her face. So did I. I thought they went to Ursula's room. And I got out of bed and went on the stairs to listen. Well, said Eunice faintly, fascinated by the look on her sister's face. There was something there, said Tabitha slowly. I'll swear it, for I stood on the landing by her door and listened. Something scuffling on the floor round and round the room. At first I thought it was the cat. 
When I went up there this morning, the door was still locked and the cat was in the kitchen. Oh, let us leave this dreadful house, moaned Eunice. What? said her sister grimly. Afraid of poor Ursula? Why should you be? Your own sister who nursed you when you were a babe, and who perhaps even now comes and watches over your slumbers. Oh, said Eunice, pressing her hand to her side. If I saw her, I should die. I should think that she had come for me, as she said she would. Oh, God, have mercy on me. I am dying. She reeled as she spoke, and before Tabitha could save her, sank senseless to the floor. Get some water, cried Tabitha, as old Martha came hurrying up the stairs. Eunice has fainted. The old woman, with a timid glance at her, retired, reappearing shortly afterwards with the water, with which she proceeded to restore her much-loved mistress to her senses. Tabitha, as soon as this was accomplished, stalked off to her room, leaving her sister and Martha sitting drearily enough in the small parlor, watching the fire, and conversing in whispers. It was clear to the old servant that this stage of things could not last much longer, and she repeatedly urged her mistress to leave the house so lonely and so mysterious. To her great delight, Eunice at length consented, despite the fierce opposition of her sister, and that the mere idea of leaving gained greatly in health and spirits. A small but comfortable house was hired in Morville, and arrangements made for a speedy change. It was the last night in the old house, and all the wild spirits of the marshes, the wind, and the sea seemed to have joined forces for one supreme effort. When the wind dropped, as it did at brief intervals, the sea was heard moaning on the distant beach, strangely mingled with the desolate warning of the bell buoy as it rocked on the waves. When the wind rose again, and the noise of the sea was lost in the fierce gusts, which, finding no obstacle on the open marshes, swept with their full fury upon the house by the creek, the strange voices of the air shrieked in its chimneys, Windows rattled, doors slammed, and even the very curtains seemed to be alive. Eunice was in bed, awake. A small nightlight in a saucer of oil shed a sickly glare upon the worm-eaten old furniture, distorting the most innocent articles into ghastly shapes. A wilder gust than usual almost deprived her of the protection afforded by that poor light, and she lay listening, fearfully, to the creakings and to the other noises on the stairs, bitterly regretting that she had not asked Martha to sleep with her. But it was not too late even now. She slipped hastily to the floor, crossed to the huge wardrobe, and was in the very act of taking her dressing gown from its peg when an unmistakable footfall was heard on the stairs. The rogue dropped from her shaking fingers, and with a quickly beating heart, she regained her bed. The sounds ceased, and a deep silence followed, which she herself was unable to break, although she strove hard to do so. 
A wild gust of wind shook the windows and nearly extinguished the light. And when its flame had regained its accustomed steadiness, she saw that the door was slowly opening, while the huge shadow of a hand blotted the papered wall. Still her tongue refused its office. The door flew open with a crash. A cloaked figure entered, and throwing aside its covering, she saw with a horror past all expression the napkin-bound face of the dead Ursula smiling terribly at her. In her last extremity, she raised her faded eyes above for succor, and then, as the figure noiselessly advanced and laid its cold hand upon her brow, the soul of Eunice Mallow left its body with a wild shriek and made its way to the Eternal. Martha, roused by the cry and shivering with dread, rushed to the door and gazed in terror at the figure which stood leaning over the bedside. As she watched, it slowly removed the cowl and the napkin and exposed the fell face of Tabitha, so strangely contorted between fear and triumph that she hardly recognized it. "'Who's there?' cried Tabitha, in a terrible voice as she saw the old woman's shadow on the wall. I thought I heard a cry, said Martha, entering. Did anybody call? Yes, Eunice, said the other, regarding her closely. I too heard the cry and hurried to her. What makes her so strange? Is she in a trance? I, said the old woman, falling on her knees by the bed and sobbing bitterly. The trance of death. Oh, my dear, my poor lonely girl, that this should be the end of it. She has died of fright, said the old woman, pointing to the eyes, which even yet retained their horror. She has seen something devilish. Tabitha's gaze fell. She has always suffered with her heart, she muttered. The night has frightened her. It frightened me. She stood upright by the foot of the bed as Martha drew the sheet over the face of the dead woman. First Ursula, then Eunice, said Tabitha, drawing a deep breath. I can't stay here. I'll dress and wait for the morning. She left the room as she spoke and with bent head proceeded to her own. Martha remained by the bedside and gently closed the staring eyes fell on her knees and prayed long and earnestly for the departed soul. Overcome with grief and fear, she remained with a bowed head until a sudden sharp cry from Tabitha brought her to her feet. Well, said the old woman going to the door. Where are you? cried Tabitha, somewhat reassured by her voice. In Miss Eunice's bedroom. Do you want anything? Come down at once, quick, I am unwell. Her voice rose suddenly to a scream. Quick, for God's sake, quick, or I shall go mad. There is some strange woman in the house. The old woman stumbled hastily down the stairs. What is the matter? She cried, entering the room. Who is it? What do you mean? I saw it, said Tabitha, gasping her convulsively by the shoulder. 
I was coming to you and I saw the figure of a woman in front of me going up the stairs. Is it... Can it be Ursula coming for the soul of Eunice, as she said she would? Or for yours, said Martha, the words coming from her in an odd fashion, despite herself. Tabitha, with a ghastly look, fell cowering by her side, clutching tremulously at her clothes. Light the lamps, she cried hysterically. Light a fire, make a noise. Oh, this dreadful darkness, will it never be day? Soon, soon, said Martha, overcoming her repugnance and trying to pacify her. The day comes when we will laugh at these fears. I murdered her, screamed the miserable woman. I killed her with fright. Why did she not give me the money? It was no use to her. Oh, look there. Martha, with a horrible fear, followed her glance to the door, but saw nothing. It's Ursula, said Tabitha from between her teeth. Keep her off! Keep her off! The old woman, who by some unknown sense seemed to feel the presence of a third person in the room, moved to step forward and stood before her. As she did so, Tabitha waved her arms as though to free herself from the touch of a detaining hand, half rose to her feet, and without a word fell dead before her. At this, the old woman's courage forsook her, and with a great cry, she rushed from the room, eager to escape from this house of death and mystery. The bolts of the great door were stiff with age. The strange voices seemed to ring in her ears as she strove wildly to unfasten them. Her brain whirled. She thought that the dead in their distant rooms called her, and that a devil stood on the step outside laughing and holding the door against her. Then, with a supreme effort, she flung it open, and heedless of her night clothes, passed into the bitter night. The path across the marshes was lost in the darkness, but she found it. The planks over the ditches slippery and narrow, but she crossed them in safety, until at last, her feet bleeding and her breath coming in great gasps, she entered the village and sank down more dead than alive on a cottage doorstep. End of the Three Sisters Recording by Capricia Page What a bunch of spookiness that was. I hope we learned our lesson and whatever the moral of that spooky story was. Or we just got spooked. Anyway, hey everyone, I hope you're having a good time. I hope you're having fun enjoying these spooky stories. I'm trying to keep the music to the minimum because someone said, hey, it's too loud and it's distracting from the spookiness. And I said, hey, I'm not that great at creating atmosphere for spookiness. Unless it's like an RPG or a haunted house. Anyway, so thanks everyone for listening to People's Guide to the Cthulhu Mythos. I have been your host, DB. Join us weekly when Farmer Dave and I get more into the Cthulhu Mythos and less about spooky stories. And we have special guests like Ken Height, Scott Glancy. In the past, we had Rodney Anonymous of the Dead Milkman, with all kinds of various writers. Game designers, artists, musicians, you name it, we've had them on. Uh, and yeah, thank you so much for listening. 
And join us again. Rate, review, subscribe, tell your ma, tell your pa, or I'll ship you down to Sathagua. You're going to get that shirt in the shop. P-G-T-T-C-M dot com. Check the show notes. Check out our sponsors. Check out the links. Check it out. And goodbye.